Not a, another one of these goddamn whiskey terrorists, Marty. Not another one. Not Justin. another one. Justin, wait till I tell you a wee thing. We are the only show that gets the PhD whiskey guys on. They make it one PhD whiskey guy. We've, we've, we've had two of them on. And we've had scientists on. And we keep getting scientists on. because Eventually, because this has taken a long time of coming. Yeah, this has been we've been negotiating this for a long time, but I'm very excited about this because well, all good things come to those who wait, Marty. Patience is a virtue, Justin, and I don't have much patience, but I do when it's something exciting. And we've finally got Rob Arnold on now. Rob, yes, hello, thank you, thank you for thanks joining for, us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sorry it took so long. Ah, uh, buddy, well, well worth the wait. Well worth the wait. Now, Rob. Is a whiskey PhD, and he's also an author author of a book that is really of its time and probably quite important because it's the terroir of whiskey. Now, Rob, you need to tell us how did you how how did you get on that journey to writing the book, The Terroir of Whiskey? Yeah, it started really. Um... So I was the master distiller for TX Whiskey uh, for 10 years, and we're in Fort Worth. Um, and we had always used Texas corn and Texas wheat to make our bourbon. So we made a wheated bourbon, so corn, wheat, and then barley malt uh, as the grain bill. But I realized early on that while I was able to source Texas corn and Texas wheat, the grain suppliers couldn't tell me much more about the corn or the wheat beyond the fact that it came from somewhere in Texas and maybe it was the Panhandle or North Texas or wherever it was, but they, they couldn't tell me what farm or what farms and they couldn't tell me the varieties that I was working with. Um, I knew it was yellow corn, but that's not a variety. That's like yeah. saying you use red, <laughs> that's like saying you use red grapes to make wine. So um, it wasn't that we were making bad bourbon, but it just, it seemed shallow. The, the, the the specification that I was getting just didn't seem like I had a lot of control over what it was or, or just or a part in making a decision of, of what I was working with. And yeah. And that just looked very different than the wine industry. And because it, it is very different than the wine industry where my maker would of course never say I use red grapes to make my <laughs> wine. I mean they do use red grapes and white grapes, but they're they're gonna use Merlot or Chardonnay or Pinot Noir mm-hmm. or Cabernet and they're going to source those grapes from specific vineyards within specific areas that are usually at the government level regulated as to what this is just the Napa Valley or the Bordeaux yeah. or Tuscany region, you know, and we just had nothing, nothing along those lines in the, in the whiskey industry. I mean, sure. We have regional designations for certain styles. I mean, within American whiskey, there's bourbon and even though bourbon is not just made in Kentucky, it's made, it can be made no. anywhere in the United States, you know, that is a regional designation. And then, in, and then in Scotland, you know, you, you have Speyside and uh, Isla, and, you know, you have these different regions, but that's not where the grain came from. That's just where the yeah. distillery is. And a Merlot from Napa Valley means that the majority of those grapes, if it's labeled as such are Merlot grapes from Napa Valley. So yeah. that was, that was kind of, it was just more that realization that some, something's, there's just a big difference between us and the wine world. And I wanted to know why. I, I mean, uh, this, this is, this is becoming more and more of a thing. And, and in your book, I didn't realize this. Uh, you explained that Missouri 
though, in, in terms yeah. of a, a sort of technical file for Missouri whiskey, the grain has to be grown in Missouri. That, that's fairly unique. Um, it is, and they're one of the few states that is um, with their own regulations to say, uh, okay, well, you can make Missouri bourbon, but it has to be made from Missouri corn. And, yeah. and Tennessee has done that. They actually finally did regulate what Tennessee whiskey is. You know, it is made of bourbon. There's an additional step of charcoal mellowing of the new make, of yeah. the new spirit. And that, and that is now a rule to make Tennessee whiskey. Um, and that's something that's starting to happen more and more. These, or these, these states are starting to put an importance on where the raw ingredient comes. And it makes sense, right? I mean, yeah, it's great it that we have distilleries in Missouri and Texas and New York and all these places, but you know, if a, if a, if a Texas distillery is buying their, uh, their corn to make their bourbon from, you know, some Midwest grain supplier that's up in Iowa or Illinois, nothing inherently wrong with that, but why no, not support course. your local agriculture? Well, I mean, the thing is it has to be distilled and aged somewhere, but, well, the water, the water has to be made locally. You can't ship water. You're not shipping water halfway right, across yeah. the U.S. Yeah. Um, it's, it makes sense that the, the barley, the, you know, the actual cereal mm-hmm. products ha- have to be local. And if, if they're going to be local, then it makes sense that there's, there's, there's a flavor difference between something that's grown here and something that's grown 500 miles away. It doesn't matter in which direction you go. It's always going to be slightly different. Yeah. Um, now, the one thing about it, you, you, this was in Hillsborough. That's, yeah. that's where you were sourced. That's Hillsborough, by the way, anyone that doesn't know, Hillsborough over there is named after the Hillsborough just down the road from Justin. No, uh, right. after, okay. yeah, yeah, that's where the name comes from. It comes from the Hill family who, oh. lost, the, who lost the colonies. Will Hill, probably oh. the worst diplomat ever in history. Whenever, <laughs> he was the guy that they made the representation to. No taxation without representation. And he went, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but, well, yeah, Hillsborough is where the farm that I eventually partnered up with is located. So I was buying grain from the commodity sources, and um, but I wanted to work with the farm directly so that I knew where the corn and the wheat was coming from, and I knew what varieties I was working with. Yeah. And I found a farmer in Hillsborough, which is 45 minutes south of our distillery, run by a fourth-generation Texas farmer. His name's John Sawyer. And so I teamed up with him, and then all of a sudden I had complete transparency and insight into where our corn and our wheat was being grown. And I eventually, he, he really helped pioneer the growing of rye and barley in Texas. And we have local malt houses. Actually, we have one in Fort Worth called Textmalt. And so after a couple of years of working with him, he also became our sole supplier of rye and barley, which was then malted locally. So we became a single farm distillery um, working with John Sawyer Mm -hmm. and Again, complete transparency on what he was growing, the varieties, and and where they were being grown. Not just on the farm. I knew what field they were coming from. You know, he had he, he's a four thousand acre farmer, so he's got lots of different separate fields. Yeah. Um, and that allowed us. I mean, and just right off the bat, and you know, when we switched to him, I could tell a difference in the new make spirit. I could tell a flavor difference. And so that was sort like, of that t- first. Well, hold on, maybe there's something to this terroir thing. Tell tell me this. This is non-GM crop you're using. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. the, there's no commercially available 
GMO varieties for wheat or rye or barley. There are for corn, obviously, but we worked yeah. with a, a non-GMO yellow dent corn. Still a hybrid, but hybrid doesn't mean GMO, right? No, hybrid, hybrid's basically evolution advanced. That's what I like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, now, he has a four thousand acre farm. Did he does did he know that grain growing on one side of it? And I mean, four thousand acres is a huge, huge part of land. Did he know that if I take grain from that and and taste it, is it different from? 3,000 acres away. Do you know what? Do you understand what I mean? So, yeah, never. Not, so not from a flavor standpoint, no, because before he started working with us, you know, he wasn't eating his grain. He was selling mm-hmm. the yellow corn to the feed and fuel markets. He was selling soft red winter wheat or hard red winter wheat to, um, you know, essentially milling industries for, for white flour. But, um, but from an agronomic standpoint, from understanding how to manage his fields differently based on the environments that are, present on those distinct fields yeah you, he managed his fields differently because of you, you i mean essentially because of terroir and i i describe terroir and i i think this aligns with the way that from a scientific standpoint you would you would consider it is that it's essentially the the interplay of nature and nurture so nature is the genetic code the dna that's present in whatever grain variety or species you're working with and then Nurture is the environmental conditions on the farm. So from a flavor standpoint, whatever kind of flavor a a batch of corn, a variety of corn can make is at the basal level dictated by its DNA. But then the environment impacts how its genes are expressed. And that ultimately leads to a a profile of flavor. Um, And so it's the interplay of nature and nurture is, to me, uh, terroir is just a a romantic synonym for that notion. Yeah. Now, now, the way I, reading your book, the way I sort of took the the first bit of it, because you go, it's it's basically broken into three different parts of the Mm -hmm. book. Uh, And the first bit is you trying to understand what's been going on for a period of time. Now, post-Second World War, it really became all about a commodity and about yield. Yeah. Before, prior to, yeah. Yeah. Now, to me, my interpretation, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that in order to get the yield, you, 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 everything was about making a sort of universal product. Mm-hmm. And, and in essence, you were, the, the, what the terroir was, it was about forcing or force feeding something to meet a certain standard so yeah i mean yeah you yeah you if you're only going for yield um then diversity at least at the you know diversity in a, in one sense is a bad thing you want you know you need some diversity within your modern crops because so, there's different environments they're going to be grown yeah. in but you don't want that much diversity because you want them to behave similarly. You want the same chemical treatments or agronomic techniques to impact them in this, in a, in a similar way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we bred away diversity, um, in our modern crop species and, um, flavor was a innocent, uh, you know, we, we lost it. Um, (laughs) sacrificial, sacrificial. Yeah. 
And it's not like new high-yielding varieties make bad spirit. Of course they don't. No. Everything that we taste right now was produced from a, you know, unless it's like a 70-year-old whiskey or something. But yeah. everything that we taste right now was made from high-yielding modern varieties. But there's a lot of diversity within um, the species that we work with, corn, wheat, barley, and rye, that we've, we've lost that diversity. Yeah. And so I do think that terroir, the pursuit of terroir will we will discover old and new chemistry that will result in old and, you know, discovering new and forgotten flavors um, that haven't, we haven't seen in our whiskeys for a long time. No. Uh, and in the book, you talk about um, grain derived flavor compounds, mm-hmm. things that translate all the way through to the end product that are developed in the cereal or developed right. in, in the grain. Um, and, and you go in, your but your book's very very clever in that it manages to balance quite scientific stuff, which let's be honest, the average there's, guy's a bit. But there's a little lot of science, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you do the science, but you you mark it quite well and explain this, and then give a certain amount of science that and people then. go. Right, okay, I'm, I'm lost <laughs> in this here, and then you pack it up again and move on with it. But yeah, but there's certain certain compounds that you just you discovered that really come from the cereal uh, and, and translate all the way through. So, I mean, could you explain that to us? Yeah. And that was, and this is one of my biggest arguments when I try to explain how terroir does impact flavor and whiskey, because obviously that this is a very hot, hotly debated word. Um, and it, it's because <laughs> a lot of people just uh, say that it, it, terroir can't impact flavor in whiskey, or if it does, it's minimal, you know? Yeah. Um, and the idea is that ma- whiskey is so manufactured and it's gone through so many processing steps and the lengthy maturation process. It's so different than wine on the surface. Uh, I would agree that you could look at it and say that maybe it is, but uh, it, there are more similarities and differences in my opinion. But the point is I always bring up the grain derived compounds as very finite evidence of how terroir impacts flavor in whiskey. So there's a bunch of different flavor compounds in whiskey that influence flavor from esters to aldehydes to alcohols, whether it's ethanol or the higher alcohols, the fusel oils. Um, There's terpenes, there's phenols, (laughs) and all these things come together. And, you know, there's probably 50 to 60 flavor compounds in a glass that actually are really important for flavor there's hundreds of compounds present but there's probably 50 or 60 that really matter for flavor and some of the ones that are very important for flavor are the terpenes specifically these ones called norisoprenoids and those are derived from carotenoid degradation in the grain so you have these carotenoids in the kernels and during the mashing process and and distillation process the high heat they're degraded um, thermal degradation and the result are these uh, really important terpenes that influence flavor. Beta-demacinone is one of the most important ones, and it's got and what, this baked apple whiskey flavor. I was going to say, just yeah. explain what that what that flavor is, because you say yeah. beta-demacinone. <laughs> People yeah. go, uh, science, science, yeah. hang on. Yeah, it's, it's a baked apple. I mean, literally, it's, it's baked apple, cinnamon, It's and it's also kind of whiskey-like. I mean, if you go yeah. look, you know, there's companies that you can buy pure, com- pure chemical compounds from, right? And if you go... Yeah. Look at some of those websites that sell beta-demacinone. The aroma description will say whiskey-like. <laughs> that's how much it smells like whiskey. Um, and that's not on, coming. Hold on, hold on. That's after she. If I could see, I could launch this. Mark. Hold, hold on, hold, hold on a minute here. Yeah. Uh, right. Obviously, if it's the hot climate, does it? 
you can I can understand how that gets it in Texas, but there isn't a hot climate in England where uh, the grain for Scotland comes from, is there? Well, no, the, the the thermal degradation of the grain during mashing and distillation is where right. this compound's okay. produced. Um, okay, right. Yeah, all right. I'm with you now. I'm with you now. I'm with you. See, now. Justin, okay. you don't. Global warming will take care of all that before yeah, we I, get. I, I know that, but I'm trying to think of the aspects. Be all right about it. You know, I'm trying to think of the aspects of terroir. You know, the soil, the climate, the tradition, the terrain. Um, well, so yeah, to you me, have this to... is the pro. This is the process you're talking about is affecting the terroir more than anything. But remember where the these terpenes are derived from carotenoids in the grain, and right. the influences of terroir impact the concentration of those carotenoids in the grain. So almost all of the important flavor compounds that are derived from grain um, are not they're they're not actually present in the grain themselves. Their precursors are present. And through the processing of that grain, okay. those precursors are converted into flavor compounds. And that's, the, that's true with oak as well. I mean, most of those really important flavor compounds in the oak barrel, they're not there until we char or toast the barrel. And then yeah. they're there. The precursors are broken down during that process. Or even just okay. ethanol itself will break down a lot of those oak constituents into flavor compounds. And I'll, t- I'll tell you what I love. There's a couple of bits in it where you actually explain the the the, pers- the, the parts per billion in some of these. Yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, Even parts I, per I, trillion, yeah. I always, I always try and explain to people the difference between a million and a billion. You know, a million, yeah. million seconds is less than 12 days. A billion seconds is 34 years. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, you're, and you're talking about stuff that's... I've never years. heard of that one. That's That's crazy. Yeah. Well, 120 parts per billion so that would be 120 seconds so two minutes in 34 years yeah that's that's where these flavor compounds are coming from that's that's the level we're talking and yeah they'll taste these you know two minutes and 34 years and this is this is lasting on it's a it's a fascinating thing um yeah you get you know a lot of the important flavor compounds are present at parts per billion or even parts per trillion. So it's micrograms incredible. per liter or nanograms per liter. I mean, <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's insane how sensitive the, you know, the, the human, human nose is to some of these flavor compounds. It's um, incredible. Now the, the, there was a couple, there's a few things I, I, I really have to bring this up. Um, the mice eating the organic and the biodynamic corn, uh, I, I get a bit superstitious about all this. Whenever people go, oh, God, you know, witchery and all this kind of stuff. But if if mice come out and there's two piles of grain and they eat the organic stuff and leave the, 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 the commodity grain. Right. Not wow. there's nothing wrong with commodity grain. But explain this in the book because you, you, you talk about this for quite a bit. Yeah, this – well, and this was just a story I heard from – one of the pioneering organic farmers in New York, but basically one of her friends or one of her colleagues had found that this is, this is Mary, Mary Howell. Right. Uh, yeah. They, they run, um, uh, man, I think it's called Lake, Lake View organic. I, um, but they, 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 they've been in the organic farming game for a long time and they, we're pine. They're definitely pioneers of it, not just even in the in New England, but yeah, um, throughout the entire United States. But um, and they provide 
grain to a lot of well-known, not, not just distillers, but also, also chefs. But um, yeah, that the story goes that uh, a farmer was, you know, put out a pile of organic corn and a pile of conventionally grown corn that used chemicals and all of that. And um, the mice at night would consistently go to the organic corn pile to eat. Mm. And even when the farmer would switch up the piles, so, you know, basically they would, you know, reverse the, the setup. Wow. The mice would still go to the organic pile. So they weren't going to a spot. They were going to the organic corn yeah. itself. And somehow they knew. Now, no, no one he he no one actually knew what was going on, and we still don't necessarily. But it's uh, yeah, it makes you think, doesn't it? Like well, you know, just, the just, mice to put know. Con- just to put this in context, Mary Howell is not like the witch Mary Howell. She's she not like some new age <laughs> necromancer. She she's like a uh, a doctor. She's 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 a proper yeah. academic yeah, scientist. She, she's got um, master's degree in plant breeding from Cornell and. Um, she, you know, when I talked to her, she was really, really, um, fun to talk to and, and interesting to get her, her opinion. And, you know, she, like the first thing she said to me on the phone was, well, I don't want to perpetuate this idea that you can taste terroir and whiskey. Cause I don't know if I believe that or not. You're the good for me. You're the good for me. But, um, I explained to her what I was doing and that I, um, I wasn't trying to just get her quote in some article and it was going to be uh you know that wasn't yeah. i was gonna i was trying to dive into the science and i wanted to get her opinion because she has a science background and and so the more we talked about it, the more i realized to her it is very important um you know where you are that impacts flavor it is very important what kind of variety you work with you know uh her and her husband that manage the farm definitely have seen the diversity of flavor that exists among different you know heirloom varieties and how much is is lost within our modern varieties. But she also was very adamant that like, look, it's so much about the way you farm and the health of your soil. So much about that has to do with the flavors that we taste in our products and that our chefs and our, and our other clients do as well. Now they're not doing academic studies to really unravel what's going on, but anecdotally, and that's uh, usually that's, that's good enough for whiskey making because in the end it just matters if it tastes good or not. And um, yeah, if, yeah, if the story around it, is it a romantic story? Does it taste good? Is, is it and so i thought that was very interesting and it made me just i, I kind of one of the things i thought about when i was talking to her was this idea of how you know when you when you force a crop to grow with high inputs and chemicals and they're not and they're not really in the environment that's conducive for their growth you're just forcing them to grow with synthetic inputs mm-hmm. it kind of reminded me of the way like when we'll, we'll, if we put certain animals or fish and and in zoos or in aquariums and some do great, but some just don't. And one yeah. of the greatest examples is like, the, we just can't keep the great white shark in an aquarium because it won't eat. It's like this, yeah. one of the greatest um, hunters <laughs> that's ever lived. And we can't, it, it won't eat when it's in an, yeah. And it won't yeah. eat in an aquarium. And um, it just, it, it just, you know, you, it just reminded me a little bit about, you know, the way that we force certain crops to grow with yeah. inputs and how you you might lose a lot of the innate characteristics of that crop flavor included when you do that. Yeah. Now, you compare a, a lot, certainly at the start, and, and well, it continues on in the book, uh, uh, wine uh, and whiskey. And there seems to be, both of them have uh, that, that sense of place 
I don't want to use the word terroir because they have this sense of place. And whiskey, and I'll tell you what I'll do, since you're, since you're in Texas, I'll have a little... Oh, yeah. I was just talking to Heather Green yesterday, actually. I'll just have a wee Texas Texas whiskey. Yeah. Um, but all whiskeys like to label that we are from this area. And, and wine has been doing this and doing it a lot, probably better, if I'm, if I'm honest. Oh yeah, uh, definitely, definitely better than, than 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 whiskey. And you compare the two now. One of the things in the in the book is you talk about the global order of wine. Okay, that wine smells mm-hmm. like wine. And I was talking to guys on Saturday, and they said, "Well, you do you do these you do these nosings, and all I get is the smell of whiskey. Is there a global order a global order of whiskey? Yes, I." I think so. Now we haven't unraveled that the way the wine industry has. And just to be clear, there is a there's a set of 18 to 20 compounds that are present in every wine, no matter what the variety of grape or the vineyard location or the processing techniques used. And those 18 to 20 compounds are responsible for the underlying flavor of wine. Obviously, there's then other flavor compounds that top it off and create all the nuances that exist among wine types. But yeah, I think, I do think that there is probably a similar situation in whiskey and every food beverage. There are an underlying set of compounds that are shared across every style or distinction that might exist within that beverage type that is responsible for the fact that it tastes like whiskey or tastes like beer or tastes like wine or tastes like a banana or tastes like an apple or tastes <laughs> like chick, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and then it's every, it's all the, the nuances that can be put into play either through ingredient selection or farm location or processing technique that create all the distinctions that exist within whiskey and beer and wine or apples or bananas or chickens. <laughs> so here's a question for you, Rob, right? You know, the way some of the wine growers leave the, the, the grapes on the vine until the first frost comes like Ousley's or Spatsley's or that sort of thing. What would happen if you left the grain in the field until the winter time and froze it a bit? Would, would, would that ruin it or would that, would that create something totally different? Well, I mean, as soon as the the issue there is that as that grain starts to dry out on on the stalk, it's the whole purpose of that of that ear of corn or or spikelet of barley is to fall off and getting you know go to the ground and be a create seed. a new plant. Yeah, so eventually you, right? all those kernels, right? It's a yeah, kernels and seeds are the same thing. It's just a matter of how you're using them. So. Um, grain and seeds are the same thing. It's just a matter of how you're using them. So you, you couldn't leave it on the stock that long because it would fall off before it became <laughs> right? frozen. It's just, just, just a thought. If somebody wants yeah. to try it, you know, and collect them, and because you know, obviously, but, somebody discovered that, that that improved the wine because I quite quite like ice wine. Uh, that improved uh, the wine. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. Just it was just a thought. Yeah. Well, but you, you're. It's actually a really good point though it's not like again like it would, it would fall off before you could let it sit there too much you know one, we harvest at the point where it's not too far from ready to fall off anyways but yeah um, but i think but the idea is the idea is great about stressing it winemakers do things in the vineyard yeah and the vineyard managers the winemakers the wine growers whatever you want to call the person in the vineyard 
they're making decisions, agronomic approaches that are tailored around flavor. That doesn't exist in not just whiskey growing for grains, but grain growing in general. The closest thing we have is making the choice to farm organically or biodynamically or, you know, just to not use inputs that are synthetic, you know, things like that. Those are the closest things we have to using, you know, to implementing agronomic approaches that are, that are meant to improve or tailor flavor, you know, whereas the winemakers, that's, that's just, that's just second nature. That's how you grow wine grapes. There's so many decisions yeah. they make from, from bunch thinning to, to, you know, training Leaf the vine, how to all that. That's all centered around some, you know, yield to an extent, health of the vine, but also flavor. Um, so, and that's actually the one thing I asked Mary Howe a little bit about this, you know, about um, stressing, Mary Howe, the, from the, from the mice corn story, yeah, stressing, yeah, yeah. stressing, you know, stressing our crops. And, um, you know, it's stressing grains and it, you know, could it work? Maybe one of the issues is usually stress is, will create a more, a plant that's more susceptible to like fungal infection. So, you know, it might, <laughs> yeah, aflato- aflatoxin is not a good thing in corn, no matter how, no, it's good. It, yeah. <laughs> so there, maybe there's some more hiccups that we'd have to iron out compared to wine, but you know, I think yeah. that there's something to it, I think it's I think it's a couple decades out, but I do think that there is a future where we're growing whiskey grains in a manner that looks a lot more similar to the way wine grapes are grown, where decisions are made on the farm that tailor flavor. Yeah, and, and tailor tailor flavoring is is uh, something I want to ask you about because I love the bit in the the, the book where you start talking about you isolate a yeast. Mm-hmm. Now, I personally, I th- personally, I think whenever you say isolate a yeast, that's like you go right. That's the one for me. Right, all the rest of you, bugger <laughs> off. Not want to speak yeah. to you. <laughs> you know, stand away, get away. Like yeah. you isolate a yeast. Um, Brazos, that's what you uh-huh. call it. Brazos, isn't it? Yep. Um, Brazos. And tell tell us that story. Yeah, that's quite funny. That was the first thing I ever did when I joined TX Whiskey. So this was back in two thousand eleven. Um, and I was essentially in an, in an interview with the company's original proprietors, Troy Robertson and Leonard Firestone. Um, the company's original name was Firestone and Robertson Distilling Company, and we made TX Whiskey. We eventually sold to Pernod Ricard, but my original bosses and the, the guys that we, re- we built the company together were, um, we were in, and I was in an interview with them, um, and they had been to Kentucky and done the bourbon trail. And in Kentucky, most of the distilleries, especially the longstanding ones, have proprietary wild yeast that they isolated, and uh, usually before prohibition or right after. And that's the yeast they use to make their whiskey. So each distillery has their own strain of yeast. It's very different mm-hmm. than what you know in the Scotch industry, just as an example, where there's like one or two commercial strains that are yeah. pretty, pretty much yeast. universal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's with and. Not not the sidebar too much, but I think one of the reasons that things diverged between American whiskey and, and, and what happened over in Europe was that you just you had it was a smaller piece of land. You had a lot of breweries around already. You had a, a plenty of brewers yeast that you could pick up. There just wasn't that that didn't exist in Kentucky and, and Tennessee and and, and even you know, up in New England and, and Pennsylvania where they were also making whiskey. So you you essentially had to in a lot of places, especially in Kentucky. Uh, and when it was truly the frontier, you had to isolate a wild yeast because there yeah. you'd have a brewer friend down the street, and most likely, especially not of scale, that could supply you yeast. But 
anyways, they wanted me to isolate a wild Texas yeast to make our, our bourbon. And um, how, do, how do you go about isolating the yeast? That, 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 that baffles me. Well, I didn't know right away, but I told them I could do I'll it. Find so, one. Because I, wa- I, wanted the, I wanted the job, so I said, sure, I can do that for you. Of course but, you um, can. Yeah. But my background up until that point in graduate school had been um, in a, a field of chemistry known as marine natural products. And one of the things I did was isolate marine bacteria from ocean sediment. And so it was actually these techniques of microbiology are pretty similar, it, whether it's bacteria or, or, um, or fungus or whatever, or even, you know, even other things. But, um, the, uh, the way it worked is I went to this ranch 45 minutes from our distillery or so and took samples of nuts and fruits and seeds and soil samples and bark samples. You know, I liked if it was like a fruit or a nut on the ground and had been kind of rotting, that's great. That's where you have a lot of wild yeast, but wild yeast are everywhere. I mean, you don't, you don't see (laughs) them. They're microscopic. You don't see them, but, um, but I took all these samples back to the lab. Bacteria. Yeah. Bacteria. No, that's not good. Oh, there's a yeast. Happy days. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, I mean, (laughs) you get to a point where it is kind of like that. So I took all those samples back to the lab and was able to, on auger plates, like little like discs, you know, petri dishes with with jello that is, you know, nutrient filled jello, you know, put these samples onto those plates and things start to grow. And a lot of that stuff was bacteria, but you can, tell sometimes when it looks more like a fungus especially the one that we want to work with when we make whiskey or wine or ales and that's the caramyces cerevisiae mm-hmm. and you can kind of tell sometimes that it looks a little bit like that yeast because there's a distinct morphology to it and so i was able to isolate a bunch of different yeast in, in a purified you know purified cultures and then do dna sequencing to, to determine which ones were actually saccharomyces cerevisiae and from there, we just did small-scale distillations and fermentations with the the most promising isolates that were the correct species. And and based on its ability to thrive in a bourbon mash, the alcohol production characteristics, the flavors that it was producing, yeah. we we picked one. Uh, me and Troy and Leonard, we picked one, and um, it was actually the one from the pecan nut on the farm <laughs> on the ranch, and that's the state tree of Texas. So it, I always say. I always say it sounds like the biggest bullshit marketing story ever, but it's just the. I love picking nuts. I love them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a total. I'm a total sucker for gimmicks and 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 bullshit marketing. Yeah. I understand well, that it's bullshit marketing. I understand it's a gimmick, yeah. but I still like it. You I still just, like I, it. Yeah. Why not? You know, well, the fact that we have that TX whiskey has a pecan yeast is a. You know, it's not bullshit gimmicky marketing. It sounds like it, but it's just coincidence. It was just luck, honestly. It was just coincidence. Um, a dream come true. Yeah. A dream come but true. It, but it you produces have... a lot of dark fruit, cinnamon flavors, a very distinct profile flavor that this yeast makes. Now, the thing is, you, you, you're now talking about terroir and your, your grain-derived flavor compounds. Now you've isolated a yeast and, and distilling. There, there is this perception and, and idea that once you boil something a few times that you kill off all of this but you don't i mean no. it can't it's impossible you can't there's the flavor has to come from somewhere yeah and it, so you have all the different now you have the different shapes of stills then going into cask and you end up with, with the end product so all of this plays a part now personally i think if you go a certain period of time beyond in a cask the cask starts to dominate 
that's that's overriding because all these other co- compounds start to break down or they start moving or you know whatever. But initially, it has to come from the soil, from the from the grain, the fermentation. I think, mm-hmm. if I'm honest, I think the fermentation is probably where the vast majority of flavor comes from. It that's where you get some of your most important flavor compounds, yeah. esters and higher alcohols, and some of the fatty acids are yeah. are coming from the fermentation process. But um, you know, I mean, you if you're looking like grain derived, you're talking about usually aldehydes from lipid oxidation. They're still very important. Yeah. They're probably not as important as esters, but they're very important. You have terpenes, very important. Some volatile phenols that come from lignin degradation. Um, fermentation, you get, you know, esters and higher alcohols and fatty acids and, um, production of some acetals. There's all these flavor compounds, right? But but you don't destroy any of those during distillation. I don't care if you distill it 10 times. Now you can discard some. It's not not high enough temperature. It's not, it can't be high enough temperature. Well, and you, you can break down, some of those compounds might break down, but that's, that's, but they're just going to end up reacting with something else. So they're still yeah, playing. Oxy- oxygen Oxygen's going to yeah. break some of them down. A lot so of them's going to break down the oxygen. Even if they don't make their way through all the way from grain to finished spirit without being manipulated in some way, uh, you know, terpenes are not manipulated, but yeah, in general, but you know, even if they are along the way, they're still playing a role in flavor development because they're a part of those reactions. I mean, a really good point is you're looking at the yeast side of things, but yeast make a lot of esters. Esters are super important for flavor development, but esters are also constantly increasing during maturation. That's yeah. because you have a lot of the starting, you ha- you need alcohol and acids to make esters. And you have a lot of those present in the new make from the fermentation. And they over time, yeah develop into esters in the barrel. Um, yeah. Some of that's also linked to um, other things that go on inside the barrel that aren't truly tied to the fermentation byproducts in that way. But the point is like, it's all, there's really no, you know, it's all this interwoven tapestry and you can pull a thread, whether it's an ingredient or a process and you're going to shift it in some way. <laughs> yeah. So I just, Absolutely. even if you age it for 15, 20 years, you know, in the end, you're still working. All those initial flavor compounds produced from the grain and the fermentation are still playing a role throughout maturation. Yeah. They might just serve as yeah. precursors to flavor compounds. Now, we're, we're going to have to ask the question. Justin's getting to anticipate it. You came to I, Ireland. You came to Ireland yeah. and you met Grace. Yeah. Grace O'Reilly. Yeah, we're, 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 all, we're all a big fan of Grace, by the way. Everybody, <laughs> every time I meet someone who I've met for the first time, goes, "Yeah, where do you get Grace on again? She's she was awesome. Yeah, She's yeah. unbelievably clever, really funny. Everything about her is just super. Now you can't. Yeah, Water, Waterford Distillery. Waterford Distillery. Yeah. This is their big thing. So, yep. Tell us, tell us about you coming over to Ireland. Yeah, it was. Um, so my wife made the trip with me, so we got to you know, go on some whiskey adventures through the book research. And obviously if you do a book about whiskey terroir and you don't go to Waterford, yeah, I can't, I don't know if you can really do a book about whiskey terroir and not go to Waterford. So that was high on the line. We went to Dublin and um, Grace picked us up and we drove down and spent a couple of days with the entire team there. They're fantastic. Um, I didn't get to meet Mark Rainier. He wasn't on site, but I talked to him over the phone a few times, but um, the crew, 
uh, Neil, Ned, Grace, the whole the whole team there is awesome. um, super great, very down to earth. Couldn't have been nicer. Couldn't have been more insightful. Couldn't have been more like as someone that cared about whiskey terroir. It was, I mean, it's an infectious place to go <laughs> when it comes to like that. Just you just you can't leave there without this feeling of like this is the coolest thing that's ever happened up to whiskey. <laughs> like I don't. I know some people don't. I know some people are very like. I know, absolutely. Um, a, it's, it's hard to it's hard to talk, it's hard to talk to Grace and not become a bit infected by the whole yeah. thing. Well, like everyone there. I mean, uh, and I know like some people. Um, you know, I, I don't do a lot on Twitter, but you know, there's like whiskey Twitter loves to jump out and attack uh, Mark's approach to this, which is. Anything but subtle. I get it. Um, <laughs> Twitter attacks everybody. Don't worry. Don't yeah, worry. Yeah. Would your would your grandpappy be proud of you, Rob? Because uh, you're the third generation involved in whiskey. I hope so. Yeah. He. Um. You know, I, my grandfather, my uncles, and my great uncles were all in the bourbon industry, and I, I know for a fact my uncle, who's still alive, is is very proud and has had a lot of fun um seeing me join the industry and, and grow within it because it's i could it kind of like reminds him of the time when he was a part of it you know and yeah it's uh yeah it's been um it's it's a fun industry to be a part of especially someone <laughs> from kentucky um even though i'm in texas doing whiskey making but it's just the the connection um it's just it's a very it's a very close-knit small family just like yeah you know a lot of things but anywhere in the whiskey world you kind of have that i mean whether it's in scotland ireland kentucky texas forever and i mean the the whole whiskey family is really quite small uh it's it's amazing how how you can talk to one person and they go oh no i know i know him from alaska or wherever it doesn't matter there's always somebody you know somebody but generally very nice and yeah generally generally very nice ireland it's very nice at the minute, but I can see in about five years' time it'll be. Yeah. Now <laughs> in the US, someone, someone, I keep telling people this story. Uh, I was at a press launch of a thing, uh, and someone asked me about where where is the new emerging whiskey industries, and I had to say, to be honest with you, the US, and they they sort of scoffed at me, and I said, well, no, because. About ten years ago, there was about thirty distilleries in in, in the US. Right, you know, fifteen oh, years yeah. ago it was about thirty distilleries. Now there's like two thousand. And oh, okay, so some, yeah. some of them are are tiny little concerns, but they're still producing whiskey. Yep. So, wh- how do you see the the American whiskey scene at the minute? I, I there's no end in sight to how many more distilleries are going to keep uh, coming into existence. I mean. Uh, and, it, and honestly, you look to, at the way it was in the 19th century and before Prohibition. I mean, there were thousands of distilleries. Yeah. Like just in Kentucky, much less, <laughs> you know, the country. So I think, I mean, they were smaller, obviously, but I think we're going to see a lot more of this. We're going to see a lot of distilleries um, that are built and that do that are driving innovation and quality. Yeah. And, you know, they're going to drive these things. They're going to, and, that's a lot of times that's much more doable when you're only trying to create 10,000 case brand versus a 10, you know, a million case brand. And so the more that the more of these new players that we have and these new distilleries 
and new innovations that come along, you know, it's just going to keep pushing the style forward. And I hope that terroir is one of those new innovations that continues to, to take hold and, um, you know, allow us to just explore, like I've, like I said, it's I say in the book, you know, just new and forgotten flavors that, mm-hmm. that we can yield in whiskey. Even plus, I think that maybe the most important thing with terroir or one of the more important things is it's a great way to tap into sustainable agriculture. It's a yeah. great way to move away from the industrial model and actually put some, some of the, you know, our raw ingredient maybe needs to be treated less like a commodity and more like a craft product that should be, um, sustainable as well as delicious. Yeah, more more, more like an input rather than than, than, yeah. a, than, a, than a sideline. Now, yeah. your PhD, um, you, f- you finished your PhD? Yes, back in yes. February or March. Yeah. Yeah. Explain your PhD to us. Uh, it's so the degree is in plant breeding and genetics, and um, I worked with uh, my advisor, his uh, Dr. Seth Murray, who's a a corn breeder and quantitative geneticist, but also has a passion for beer and whiskey and took me on as a, as a part-time distance student. So I never left my full-time job as master distiller at TX Whiskey. I just did my research in my classes remotely. Um, and a lot of it was overlapping, right? I mean, it was, it was a project on whiskey. I mean, my, my, basically my, the goal of my project was first try to understand, um, or really in a lot of ways, try to see, definitively does terroir impact flavor in whiskey so you know look at the at the chemical and sensory level can we prove with statistics um that terroir is impacting flavor and this was a new make bourbon whiskey yeah um so very controlled in the lab um and yeah we found that there were 35 plus different flavor compounds most of which we know are very important for flavor in whiskey that were significantly impacted by some aspect of terroir, whether it was the variety of corn, where that corn was grown, or the interplay of those two things. Um, and uh, in the second part of my project, after, after what was to really say, okay, well, how can we use this notion that terroir impacts whiskey to actually breed varieties of corn or wheat or rye or barley that are more flavorful that are more tailored for whiskey making that aren't, you know, most all the varieties that we use for the most part, barley is an exception to an extent, but especially within corn and wheat, you know, these were never bred for whiskey makers. They've been bred and created for feed and fuel or white bread. So how can we leverage the fact that terroir exists and impacts flavor to actually breed more sustainable, more flavorful varieties of grain? Yeah. Um your book is fascinating and I, I i genuinely think it's 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 one of those books that anybody who's interested in whiskey really should read because it it's got a really good balance between science and yeah. your 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 discovery your adventure so it's it's kind of right. like a a diary based in science and there's lot there's lots of stuff in it that you have to go I'll read that again didn't yeah. get that. Possibly just skip along. <laughs> Pick up later yeah. on. But it, it, it's got a really nice blend of the two. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, um, that was kind of what I was trying to do. Yeah. Now, what are you doing now? Because you've left TX Bourbon. Um, mm-hmm. Are you 
hiring yourself out across the board? Are you <laughs> offering your services to anyone in particular? Well, yeah, I resigned last month. Um, no bad blood, just time to move on. There, there's new opportunities on the horizon. There is. Um, some are, you know, definitely working with some distilleries that are out there. Um, other new angles to to try to. Um, you know, integrate myself into the industry, work with other brands. Uh, I don't see myself becoming a, a distillery owner or brand owner even anytime soon, but I'll definitely. Kind of like a whiskey guru. You see yourself as yeah. sort of a whiskey guru. Come, come and speak to you. Oh, I don't know about that, but I would like to, to do what I can to, um, you know, work with new brands, especially the new brands that have some ingenious, some ingenious ideas and maybe help find ways to, to bring their ideas to life you know it, mm -hmm. this is a very capital intensive industry um you can have an amazing idea for a bottle of whiskey but doesn't mean you're ever going to get it into a bottle because yeah. of how capital intensive this industry can be so well the thing is you might have the best idea in the world but it's going to be 2030 before you can actually yeah. prove it <laughs> well that's another it's another big part about innovation moving forward is can especially here in the u.s at least is is new barrel profiles that can make a three or four year old taste like an eight or 10 year old. Yeah. Not the same. I'm not trying to not, not small barrels. I'm just talking about toasting techniques that can create very distinct flavors and great flavors in a shorter period of time. It's a, it's amazing. It's amazing how many ingenious new ways there are to do things and just moving, moving the whiskey industry forward. Um, yeah, definitely. Scotch will always be, always be, in my opinion, probably the premium thing. Everybody will always look to Scotland to really to really say that that's the pinnacle. But everybody else is just moving, doing different things, and that's the way that that's the way yeah. it should be. That's the way it should be. You know, well Keep in Ireland, people like Waterford and others. I mean, there's all sorts of innovations that are well underway. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Rob, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And we, we, this was supposed to be twenty minutes. It's now run over to an hour. There's the book. There's the book if you wanted. There's the book. Get that and book for Christmas. There it is. I could have run over. I could run over. I could talk to you for another hour because I, I genuinely think your book is fascinating, um, and well worth multiple readings and as as a reference. Uh, and thank you very much for it. Um, Oh, thank um, you all. Appreciate it. Keep, keep everything, keep going. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. And maybe here in a little bit, I can hop on again after a few more years of terroir whiskey data comes out and we can see. Oh, you'll be welcome back anytime. Listen, anytime you want to come on, you just put, us a, put me an email or Justin an email and you can come on anytime you like. I, 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 I think academics and, and scientists are are the people we should always be listening to. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Good, good night. Thanks, good night. Guys.